Hey guys, it's Kristen here from the Red Rum and Red Wine podcast. Before the start of the show, I just wanted to hop in real quick to speak about something that I think more people should be talking about. For those who have not seen on our Twitter or Instagram post, shameless plug, go follow at RARW podcast. Uh, I had made a recent post about feeling not myself. Uh, If I'm going to be honest, I have been experiencing depression for a large amount of my life. And in a society where we're often told to simply get over things, it's hard to feel validated in your experience in life or even in the emotions that you feel. So many times we're told that we just need to be happy and with the pictures and the videos that we see on social media, a lot of times we fall into that trick of everyone around us is happy but me. And so I just wanted to come on here, maybe I shouldn't, but I just wanted to come on and say that that is not true. I know a lot of times throughout the episodes I'm making jokes and laughing to the point where a lot of people get annoyed, but behind closed doors it's definitely not the case. There are times where I do not feel okay, and that's okay sometimes. It's hard for people, especially with depression, to feel like the day will come where things will finally get better or maybe we won't wake up completely hating ourselves. But I can assure you as someone who has gone through many bumps along the way, there has never been a point where I didn't at some point wake up and feel better. The wave always comes to an end. It may not be the last wave that you experience, but there are definitely methods and ways that you can find to better cope as long as you're finding those ways to cope in a healthy manner, of course. But I just think that it's important that we as society start telling people, hey, it's okay to not be okay. But on top of that, how can we better cope with those feelings of not feeling okay? And until we as society say, hey, depression is a real thing, anxiety is a real thing, we're not going to be able to figure out those problems. So if you feel sad, if you feel angry, if you feel depressed, anything other than happy, just know that you are not alone and same, same here. So I hope that this made sense. I hope that this reached someone and if it did not, then please just skip over and enjoy the show. So without further ado, here is our drunk mystery in history for the month of February. And please excuse us, this is a very drunk episode. Super, super awkward segue from depression into Valentine's Day, which kind of <laughs> correlates because people are super awkwardly depressed on Valentine's, even though I'm kind of like not making it about Valentine's. Because even though this doesn't have to deal with Valentine's Day, this does have to deal with a certain mystery as to why if baby Cupid were alive in the late 19th to early 20th century and needed life-saving surgery, he would have not gotten any anesthesia. 
It is hard for me to imagine that an infant doesn't experience some type of pain when you do something to it. But according to history in late 1800s, I don't really know when this thing started because I know for a fact that this was not how history of medicine started. But at some point in American history, doctors were taught to treat young patients. Like typically in one case in the late 1800s, I read a seven-year-old So, don't know the range, but basically there was a belief back in the day that babies' nervous systems were underdeveloped, and therefore there was no way that they could feel pain if you were to inflict it upon them. And because of this, it was when we did these huge operations upon babies, you know, like operations that we would put people under general anesthesia, we would simply give babies muscle relaxants in order to keep them from moving and perform these surgeries on them. And where did this belief come from? Well, science, of course. Really? There were a lot of studies in the 1940s that would incorrectly point out that babies lacked the capability to feel pain. Essentially, scientists would observe them pricking these pins into babies. The babies would squirm. And then scientifically, they said it was not because they were pricking them with pins. It was because they were newborns and newborns just squirm that way. And for you to say otherwise is like unscientifical, brah. In fact, a lot of clinicians that made the studies that would come out around this time of babies not being able to feel any type of pain are trying to understand the difference between how a fetus feels pain inside of the womb versus how adults would feel pain. And so when they made these discoveries of, oh, a fetus doesn't feel pain the same way an adult does, that attributed to later on newborns do not feel pain. Thankfully, in the 70s, you know, some people are like, okay, maybe operating on babies without anesthesia is like kind of bad. Maybe that's hurting them. Maybe that's (laughs) giving them psychological damage. Because we wake up and begin to see, quote unquote, we begin to see anesthesia begin to be administered to infants needing surgery. But really don't let that stop you from thinking that this practice wasn't continued because performing surgery on infants as old as 15 months without Any type of pain medication would be recorded in the United States up until 1986. (gasps) Which, mind you, this includes not only any type of pain relief that is given during the procedure. It's any type of post-operative relief that is given to the patient. So let's say a kid is in there for severe burns or let's say cancer. No type of pain relief. Let that sink in. So I'm guessing they didn't, uh, sorry, like back then, I don't know, like if you've ever been in the hospital or if you've been there with somebody in the hospital and the nurse asks, 
what's your pain level one to ten well it's i guess they didn't do that back then for kids because what because the what could have what could they have said and i think that's why it was done for the length that it was and definitely like don't think that this is the parents fault by any means like please stop sharpening your pitchforks this is not a type of thing where the parents were kind of like sitting by and letting it happen it was very much said that the reasoning behind the lack of anesthesia in children's surgeries was because the consent forms that parents had to sign wouldn't tell them like hey we're not using anesthesia or they would maybe say afterwards like hey after the surgery we won't use anesthesia but they weren't told that during the surgery they wouldn't receive any type of pain relief and like a really big assumption behind why this thing went on for as long as it did is because parents were left so behind in the dark which is so fucked up because I'm just like bro how many of these surgeons were parents and at the end of the day like you're gonna go kiss your fucking kid on the forehead at the end of the night and just be like yeah I'm totally doing the right thing I I'm not even joking dude I was seeing studies as late as 2003 that stated around a third of newborns would be given analgesics which I fucking know I'm saying it wrong but it's just like these pain pills that these kids get for painful procedures such as like blood tests or circumcisions not even joking there was a 2015 study that came out where doctors are like oh we just discovered that newborns can discover or can feel pain the same as adults and I'm like 2015 we're discovering that like that's not old news it's it's just really upsetting to see like how we validate science so much but at the same time science has done I'm not trying to discredit science by any means like I definitely we need to listen to science but at the same time there are just some people that are allowed into the science world that just spew such nonsense it took until 1987 for the American Academy of Pediatrics to formally declare that it is unethical to operate on newborns without using anesthetics. But then I'm still reading studies in 2003 that you're seeing procedures that are typically done on adults with anesthetic that are not being done on newborns. Yeah. And we found a study saying that they experience the same amount of pain. So I... It's well, a they real do, s- babies definitely. I'm sorry to interrupt. They 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 definitely experience pain, but it, it, sometimes definitely. with the anesthetic thing is like, if a baby a is needing slope. surgery that young, it usually means they have a serious problem and they're probably pretty weak. And the surgery is risky to begin with, and putting them under anesthetics can increase the risks of them not waking up, and. Um, not to say they shouldn't have some form of anesthetic, but even as far as pain medication for pain management post-op, you can't give them opioids, you know, you can't give them serious shit that adults would be, and 
So it's just, it is kind of a slippery slope, but like just to do it without anything is terrible. <laughs> I think exactly it is such a slippery slope because it's not only the fact that doctors were you know doing this because they were saying that newborns weren't feeling any pain but it was also the thought that if they gave newborns these type of painkillers or these type of whatever that they wouldn't be able to survive the surgery or they wouldn't be able to make it through the night so there's definitely that assumption and you know like we talk about euphoria a lot like You don't want people to get addicted off of taking a Valium or taking Oxycontin or taking something to relieve pain. You don't want to create an addict out of that. So it's a slippery slope of you don't want to put people on certain type of drugs because there's a opioid epidemic happening currently in the United States that we completely glaze over that the medical industry has pretty much started. There are so many... Yeah, the the pharmaceutical. A lot of shit in the medical industry is fucked up because we have a hard time perceiving other people's pain. And if you watch fucking medical shows, if you watch anything of the sort where they come in and they're like, I have this serious pain and all of these doctors tell me, no, nothing's wrong. No, nothing's wrong. No, nothing's wrong. And then it turns out that they have like stage five cancer. And if they didn't keep on pressing, then nothing would have been solved. It's hard for us as a human. We cannot feel that other person's pain. So we have no way of differentiating it and perceiving how bad that person's pain is. I don't Mm. know if they're in here for drugs. I don't know if they're in here because they are seriously feeling pain. And it's a reason why a lot of people that go in, even as an adult, because there are plenty of cases with people who can speak for themselves and say, hey, I'm in pain. And even as an adult will be denied pain relief because they have the assumption of, oh, you're just in here for the wrong reasons or, oh, this or that. It's even harder when you have an infant that can't speak on anything that is experiencing pain and we don't know how to go through it because at the end of the day, it's been proven like some kids have come out speaking of psychological trauma that they've experienced from these type of surgeries. But then at the same time, you don't want to give these kids fucking Oxycontin, fucking these hardcore drugs that do sometimes, not all the times, like, again, it's a fucking slippery slope, but you just, sometimes these people take the drugs, they feel the effect, and also the the need for the effect doesn't want to leave. The, um, the opioids, opioids, like, literally can cause organ damage, obviously, like, for someone who takes them a lot, but also if you take them at a young age when you're not fully developed so that's another and there have just not a thing and there have been a lot of there was like one study that I was reading about anesthesia leading to deformities for adults later in life if like you were to use anesthesia on an infant it would depending on the type of anesthesia lead to a certain type of deformity I did not read a lot into that study. Please do not quote me on that. Like, I may cut this out. But I, it's just, like, a title that I read. So, yeah, it for you to say that there is a risk-reward factor, I mean, there's definitely pros and cons. But to say that 
as a fucking doctor, as someone who is supposed to know the most, we were completely avoiding the fact that infants felt pain because we were ignoring mothers that were saying, hey, my baby feels pain. (laughs) I'm sorry, ma'am. I'm a doctor. I know more than you. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But it, I mean... These surgeries, like I had said before, severe burns. Sometimes it was for cancer. They would talk about how they would insert a tube into a child's chest. And it was just the fact that, like, you know, and I was reading in articles that are talking about it to this day of, like, well, if they experience painful trauma early on in their life, then they won't remember it later on down the road. Not true. And it's just at that point, I'm just like, it's a slippery fucking slope that we're yeah, going down. I mean, there down. are literally, there are studies that prove children, young children who spend time in the hospital, whether it's for surgery or a serious illness, and just that experience alone, even if they have managed pain, even if it's a completely quote unquote normal experience, the fact that they had to go through that in the first place is traumatic and it stays with them so to do that experience but on top of it have not the proper care or pain management extra traumatizing i was definitely reading about aspects where children who experienced these type of surgeries definitely could like go on to develop hard issues with PTSD. So to say that you're not having some kind of long-lasting effect on this, it's like psychological torture that you're committing on this being and you're just thinking because this person won't remember it, it's okay for me to do it. Like, bro, it's fucked up. And so it just, it puts some thought into perspective because they like to this day apparently one third are only getting anesthesia for certain things that apparently adults would get general anesthesia for it's just we need to I guess start putting into perspective of like I don't even know I don't even know it's it's it was fucking it was fucking weird to read about the fact that at some point in history, we were literally saying babies don't feel pain. Yeah, and because of like, that, ugh. if we needed to perform surgery. And, like, that's to say we were probably not giving anesthesia to a shit ton of babies. Like, I probably can't tell you how many babies possibly died from the shock that they felt going under that surgery mm. without any anesthesia. So, it, like the stats aren't even clear on that but yeah. to to say the amount of trauma that happened because of some stupid 1940s fucking argument which are, it's like where in humanity did we fucking think that and where did doctors and like to this day doctors are fucking arguing about stupid shit like that i'm just like it makes me want to look at my doctor and be like do i really trust you well you know, it's like putting people, humans, into shoeboxes, categorizing them, and oh, this type of human doesn't feel pain. This type of human isn't as smart. This type of human 
because you're blah, under blah, blah. 15 months you're not qualified i'm just like, like no we're all humans we all have potential we all feel pain <laughs> like jesus it was it was weird and fucked up to re- read about i'm like thankfully no one died that i knew about but at the same time there's no way for me to know because if someone if an infant did die without anesthesia they were doing it to all the freaking infants unfortunately at the time yeah and their death wouldn't have been labeled like oh cause of death by shock due to not having anesthesia it'd be like due to natural complications yeah i trust my doctor to some extent but at the same time god damn kind of makes you double think kind of makes kind of makes me give the side eye i'm like (laughs) i know you have a doctorate but i have a degree in google (laughs) youtube university google scholard (laughs) well damn thank you Kristen. Mm. yeah well what's what's your mystery about today (laughs) tonight Well, I will be talking about the 1962 laughing epidemic of Tanzania, or what was previously known as Tanganyika, Africa. So a laughing epidemic sounds pretty funny and joyful. Something we would do on a Friday night. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But this is no laughing matter. (laughs) Laughing isn't simply an expression of joy and happiness, as some of us may know. It can actually be a sign of distress. It can be triggered by anger, sadness, mania, and even nervousness. Uh, I know I'm sure we've all encountered someone, if not ourselves, who have experienced or witnessed an outburst of some sort of laughter. I know I've done nervous laughing all the time. And a lot of us know that laughter can be contagious. I love those laughing fits with your friends, you know, like where someone's laughing and you start laughing and you both laugh until your stomach hurts. Contagious laughter can can be fun. It can be joyful until it becomes a contagion. <laughs> Literally. On January 30th, 1962, an outbreak began at a girls boarding school in Tanzania, Africa. Tanzania. Tanzania. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know what? That sounds familiar. <laughs> Look at you. You right. Tanzania. <laughs> which is in the village of Kashasha. Basically, it all started with a small group of students, about three girls, who were laughing, most likely at something funny, like a joke. Whatever. Girls having fun. Mm-hmm. But the girls just could not contain themselves. It was kind of that contagious laughter. Once they started, they could not stop. And this created a chain reaction. And soon, almost their whole school was infected with laughter. Wait, so we don't even know what the fucking original joke was about? No. (laughs) That's bullshit! Are you fucking kidding me? I can't even... I wish... This uh, story or this instance has actually been re-reported and exaggerated so much where even some of the facts were hard to lock down, like figure out actually true numbers or dates or whatever. This contagious laughter was actually so concerning that the school had to close its doors in March of that year. 
so in this boarding school, um, girls, you know, kind of lived in dorms according to their age and would go home for holidays or weekends or whatever. Not at all. Who knows? Or not at all. Who knows their family <laughs> situation? <laughs> know. A lot of them got sent to school they to like, stay there and get They could have been a Harry Potter situation. Who knows? <laughs> you know, maybe their family's just ravished by gang violence and poverty. So they can stay off the streets, you know? Got it, got it, yeah. It's the harsh it's the harsh reality that unfortunately I'm making a joke out of. I'm so sorry, Africa. Yeah. I know you listen a- <laughs> I know you listen a lot, but fuck. It's just it was right there. So the this contagious laughter would spread not throughout the whole school at once. It was kind of from here and there, from dorm to dorm or group to group. Uh, It was, like, in phases, kind of. So, from the 30th or 31st of January until March 18th, when the school closed, 95 out of 159 students were affected. The school did reopen in May of that year before it closed again in June. And when it closed in June, around 48 girls at the time were affected. So as children were sent home when the school closed, the laughter soon spread even further. The immediate family of some of the students were affected. You know, they got sent back home to their villages, and it the villages were surrounding, not just the same village. And so just like that, the laughter spread even further, like an avalanche into surrounding villages and schools. Fuck. Two boys' schools were forced to shut down for a period of time as well. And depending on the source you read or whatever, this laughing epidemic lasted anywhere from six months to a year and a half. Um, Like I mentioned, the original report of this phenomenon has been exaggerated and twisted so many times. But from my research, about a year seems right, I think. So this lasted about a year, and like I said, it kind of re- it occurred in relapses or phases. It wasn't this constant thing of everyone just laughing. Uh, because, you know, you may be asking yourself or me, you're like, Sarah, is this even real? Is this true? <laughs> well, yes. While it is physically impossible to laugh constantly for, say, a year... It is possible what happened in Tanzania was triggered by external factors. So something like this, uh, in more broad or general terms, can be referred to as mass hysteria. This happens when... I know. (laughs) This happens when a certain behavior is observed uh, or shared in a group of people that is not stimulated by environmental factors. And there's usually no specific cause. Because when we think of epidemics, we think of viruses and that kind of thing. This is a mass hysteria epidemic. Mm -hmm. And usually the factors or shared behaviors can be triggered by anxiety or stress. Basically an underlying stress factor within this population And usually this mass hysteria or symptom of it, such as laughter, is a way to express that something is wrong when people don't really know how else to do it. Mass hysteria usually starts in 
public-ish kind of places where groups of people are, such as a school or a workplace. When people are in a stressful situation and they don't have the power to get out of that situation, or like I said, if they don't know how to express it, they can exhibit certain symptoms like laughter again, but sometimes they can be fidgeting or weird like fits or, you know, I've, I didn't write down other examples, but that's like the, oops, the few I remember. But what's interesting is that at the time, and so Tanzania, like I said, was formerly known as Tang- Tanganyika, had just won its independence in 1962. So people may have been feeling a little, not uneasy, but, you know, like maybe didn't know how to adjust, were nervous, and the young, pe- the young population affected by this laughter epidemic apparently reported that they were feeling stressed by the higher expectations of their teachers and parents Hmm. at this time. Obviously, because of this laughter epidemic, schools had to shut. So the education of these young people's affected were impacted. They were closed for weeks or months at times. And this kind of creates a snowball effect of negative impact within the community, within your families, uh, economics, and a lot of people in those areas, you know, they have like family farms. And and they're just, I can imagine like if not the entire family is affected that a lot of people are like, why the fuck are you laughing? Yeah. And it it only created more fear. Right. It only created more fear and confusion, which like kind of fueled the fire of mass hysteria. And um, what is also kind of interesting is that individuals with like a higher social status or educational background were not affected, such as policemen, school teachers, village headmen, like the school teachers or most of them from what I saw in the schools that closed down, they weren't affected. That may be because (laughs) there was a Ballin episode where he was talking about how these two guys in Brazil wanted to take over a town and I guess like say that they wanted to be gods. And so they wanted to pick a town that was less educated because it's more easy to manipulate them and influence so probably because a lot of these towns may have been in the lower income or non-educated parts of africa when you say that these lawyers and whatnot were able to i don't even know what i'm trying to say but no no well there's a reason why i mentioned that last bit last bit was because it just kind of, when you think about mass hysteria and who were affected and why they exhibit the symptoms of mass hysteria, such as not knowing how to articulate your anxiety or stress or how you're feeling, that you do it in like outbursts of some kind of physical form, um, you you might, it just kind of puts it in a perspective of the mindset or capabilities of the person to have situational awareness or critical thinking on what's going on and how to handle it, how to feel, how to cope or process things. 
you know, is uh, we saw a little bit of mass hysteria in America with COVID and other countries, obviously, as well. But we're in America and firsthand. But I'm surprised it wasn't a lot worse, to be honest. True. Because it could have been. And that was the story of the laughing epidemic of Tanzania in 1962. I, it's just those, it's like, um, it reminds me of the dancing epidemic, but it's just like ep- yeah. epidemics of that sort always just, Well, you know, that's another example, like one that I didn't think of is like, what is it, that woman who danced herself to death or whatever, like... Well, it, it was like fucking, it was like towns, multiple people, yeah, like, yeah. danced themselves to death. Yeah. That was a fucking uh, conundrum of a story, and it will have me <laughs> thinking about human behavior um, probably until I go to sleep. Hell yeah. Social head, cues, human behavior, pillow. everything. Well, until you can find a way to hypnotize yourself into sending us an email, <laughs> you can always do such at red rum and red wine podcast at gmail.com. And I guess if you don't want to send us an email, you can always stalk us on our Twitters or social media or I'm slurring because I'm drunk. Please don't judge me, but follow oh, us. At R-A-R-W podcast. And next week, guys. Back on the bullshit. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) But back on the bullshit. That is true crime. Bye.